Welcome to the Stubborn Tortoise Podcast. I'm Donna Pazdera. So today I want to talk to you about the DNF and redemption. This is a recurring theme in my racing <clears throat> career, if you will. Um, you know, my first DNF, as I've mentioned earlier, was in um, November of 2012. So it was fairly early in my career of as a trail runner. Um, to, for the record, I've never DNF'd a road race. Um, of course, truth be told, the longest road race I've ever done is a half marathon and I've done a bunch of them but um yeah so sometimes I just quit races because for physical reasons sometimes I quit them for I just don't feel like going any further and then sometimes I just sort of feel like I just have to cut my losses this isn't gonna work and I'm not trying to make excuses for myself or anything like that but let's just say that there are a lot of reasons and don't get mad at me but well you can get mad at me if you want but the way I look at these things is if you haven't DNF'd a race then you haven't pushed yourself far enough okay um because the way I look at it it's it's sort of like yeah I mean I and I do God love them I do have some friends that have never DNF'd races and you know I admire the hell out of them and they've one friend who's done a couple of hundred milers and you know she's never dnf'd and just always is plugging away and getting through it i have another friend that um good lord it took her i won't even tell you how long it took her but it took her a really really long time to finish a 50k and i know she struggled with that but but she's a pretty freaking amazing person and she's had some other challenges in her life uh that she's overcome so i guess maybe you know maybe it's just all relative my problem is is that I just tend to be sort of pragmatic sometimes and I'm just kind of like you know it's just not fun I'm just not feeling it anymore I'm just you know and and here's the thing I mean with races you sometimes will have highs and lows I mean anybody who's done anything for any length of distance you know is going to struggle with that that whole oh god should I quit this 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 is not feeling good I'm off I'm not doing things right, blah, 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 you know, and then sometimes you can just sort of ride it out and then, you know, you you finish and you're doing fine. Um, As somebody who's worked aid stations quite a bit, um, I see this, I can remember last year at Reveille Peak Ranch, which is going to be one of the races I talk about in my uh, podcast today. Uh, Well, we are in the podcast, but um, in the episode, um, I worked the aid station at Reveille Peak Ranch last summer and this is a summer race, um, starts 7 p.m., there's a 60, 30, 10K distance, and it's hot. I mean, it's at the end of summer, and it's just miserable, and it's a really rocky course, and I, you know, I saw a couple of people come through, and, you know, they sat in chairs for 15 minutes, and you're just in your mind thinking, man, these people are never gonna, you know, they're just gonna go the other five miles to the finish line and drop, you know, because they just look like toast. And then it was weird. Then a few few hours later, you'd see them come through and they were just like a different person. So nowadays I try to hang on to that and, and try not to quit races. Um, for the most part in the last year or so, I, I really haven't quit any races. And um, let's just say I did the snowdrop or attempted the 55 hour snowdrop race um, this past New Year's Eve, 
and I and I will talk about this race in, in an upcoming episode, but I I managed to eke out a hundred k, which was pretty good. I mean, I was shooting for a hundred miles, and just it just wasn't happening. But you know, so you just have to decide what feels right for you. But I also sort of feel like sometimes you have to kind of push past that that uh, area of fatigue or mental I can't do it ism um, and and just kind of see where your body can take you and uh, and sometimes I'm I'm I, I still struggle with that okay I'm gonna be the first to admit that and uh, and I'm not condoning DNFs and I'm certainly not saying people who've never quit a race are somehow not tough enough because they certainly are but um, that's just my joke about the um, you know, if you've never DNF'd, you haven't tried hard enough, or you, <laughs> or you haven't gone far enough, or pushed yourself far enough. Um, that's probably just my way of making myself feel better. Anyway, so this episode today is is really about a DNF and my attempt at um, reconciling that. Okay, so let me just set the scene. It's 2015, and I am kind of toward the end of my training for the Cactus Rose 50-mile self-supported race out at uh, Hill Country State Natural Area and aka Bandera. You know, again, rocky hills, blah, rugged, nasty sort of place, but whatever. Um, I had this ridiculous training plan that my friend David had given me and my friends. And, you know, mind you, okay, I'm going to come straight out and just say it. Okay. I'm in my fifties. Okay. I know I kind of dodged around it a couple of episodes ago, but I'm not a kid. And he was giving the same training plan to people who were in their mid to late twenties, uh, that I was doing. And, and so that was, that was kind of challenging. I mean, obviously it's still the same 50 miles, but I do feel like, you know, maybe some of it was just a little much for somebody like me. And, um, but anyway, that I will talk about that at another episode, um, because <laughs> that's its own story in itself. We'd spent the summer, you know, doing all these ridiculous things and I shouldn't say ridiculous, but I mean, they were just things that I would have never dreamed of myself doing, such as pulling tires for miles and doing 20 mile run in the morning and then going back out and doing another four or five. It's like, man, even now that just hurts to think about it, but I could probably do it again if I set my mind to it and got myself back into that uh, condition, which I am in the process of working on, by the way. Uh, So anyway, one of the training runs for this 50 miler was to do the Reveille Peak Ranch uh, 60K, which is the final race in the Captain Carl's Nighttime Trail series uh, put on by Tejas Trails. And again, I've mentioned Captain Carl's before, and this is a four race series held in the summer, um, varying distances. All of them are at night. So, I mean, the nighttime part is is good because at least you don't have the sun beating down on you, but it is still really hot and you're having to sort of battle. I mean, for me, the battle is more of just being out there sometimes by myself and just kind of looking up at the sky going, what are my friends doing? My non-running friends, what are they doing? You know, they're probably playing with grandkids or reading a book or sleeping, you know, and (laughs) there I'm out there falling on rocks and sweating to death and and throwing up and (laughs) whatnot, 
for what? You know, and sometimes I have to smack myself and mentally and just go, shut up. This is what you've signed up for and you must do it. Um, and, and, and so I, I do. I keep plugging away. But uh, yeah, so, so this, this is a pretty challenging series. And, and I will stick a, a link to the Reveille Peak Ranch race because, again, that one is coming up at the end of August. And if you really like rocks and, and, and elevation and, and whatnot, uh, you know, Texas style, uh, I recommend this race. It's, it's, it's a beauty and it's a gorgeous course. Of course, you can't really see a lot of it because the sun goes down, but it goes from 7, uh, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, for the 60K. It's kind of fun to sit there at the finish line, uh, you know, after dawn and watch the 60Kers come in, um, you know, after an all-night being out on the trails and I don't know there's just something really exciting about that for me as a spectator now when you're doing it it's a completely different experience okay so it's August 2015 and again I'm in toward the end of my training for this 50 mile thing and so we decided that we were going to do this you know 60k race and mind you I've never done a 60k before I've done 50ks and 50k is sort of my magic distance and uh, I kind of like it. But uh, the 60K thing and Reveille uh, are <laughs> two big question marks in my mind at this point. Anyway, let's get into it. I'm going to get it out of the way. I DNF'd. And I went in with the best of intentions, but things just completely fell apart mentally and physically. And of course, I violated the primary rule of racing. Never try anything new on race day. We got to the race less than an hour until... It was time to start, and the idea was not to sit around in the heat for too long beforehand. So we had like stopped at a Walmart and just tried to, you know, hang out in the AC for a while. But this just ended up stressing. I think this ended up stressing me out more because I'm one of these people that even though I like to run late, well, I shouldn't say I like to, but I tend to run late for a lot of things. Uh, bad journalist habit. Beat that deadline. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I like to get to a race a while before it starts just so I can kind of pull things together and just kind of relax and kind of get into the you know mindset of it and um, you know this is one of the few things I really don't like this you know Chinese fire drills sort of approach um, and, and unfortunately in this case this is what it kind of turned into you know and and the hard part was was that I needed to change my clothes because we were in street clothes and I had to get all my gear to the start. And I just mentally needed to get into the zone. Um, the night before, I had meticulously packed my vest. I put gels in one pocket. The hydration bladder was hooked up and threaded through the holes. And I even had a little piece of paper that showed the mileage between aid stations and the final cutoff times, which is a really useful thing, by the way. Pro tip. Yeah, write down those distances between aid stations. So like when you're losing your mind somewhere in the middle of the night or middle of a race, you can pull it out and just go, okay, okay, I've got this. So by the time we got to the race, I was pretty frazzled and I, I couldn't even remember where anything was. I tried filling my hydration bladder with a couple of bottles of water, but that barely made it to the halfway point. And then I frantically stuffed ice inside and figured it would melt. And I was hoping that it would keep my back cool. <laughs> Three minutes until race time, I joined the fray, and I was suddenly overcome by emotion. I started crying. What the heck? People around me were looking at me like I was crazy, and I couldn't explain why I was crying except that I was feeling nervous and emotional. Well, and this would be the longest distance I'd ever attempted. 
Uh, yeah, so the race began and I hit the start button on my new sports watch. My trusty Garmin 310 suffered a crack in the housing where the strap attaches and it made it impossible to wear it on my wrist. And so I got this new Sunto Ambit 3 a little bit before race day and I thought I could handle it. Okay, let me just give you another pro tip. Don't think that a Sunto is going to be just like a Garmin, okay? It's not. There's a big learning curve, at least in my experience, and boy, oh boy, was I in for a big surprise <laughs> at this race. So this led us to bad omen number one. The watch decided to go into some crazy mode where it was looking for altitude, and I kept pressing and pressing the next button, hoping it would default into the standard time and pace but it refused to cooperate and it settled into telling me my pace for about an hour. <laughs> this led to bad omen number two. How was I gonna know what time it was or how much time had elapsed? <clears throat> Aside, pro tip number three, I think. Wear a regular watch on your wrist with your sports watch so that way in case things go awry, you at least know what time it is. Um, I do this actually now uh, in 50 milers and it comes in really handy. Okay, back to our episode. I felt like I'd been blindfolded and, and one of my biggest concerns about this race was the 12 hour cutoff. I needed to hit the first two loops in under four hours so it would give me a uh, cushion for the final loop. Chris, my trusty fellow sufferer, had decided that she wanted to stick by me to help keep her pace. And she was using a phone app so she could at least tell me how far and how long it had taken. Plus she was, she kind of has this fear of the dark and so this is another reason she stayed with me. So about a week and a half before the race, I decided to buy some new trail shoes. <laughs> Bad idea. Uh, I wanted something with cushion and traction and I was enthusiastically in introduced to a shoe that seemed ideal. Hoka Speed Goat. <laughs> this was the first edition of it, too. I spent a good chunk of money on them, but only got in like a 10-mile pavement run beforehand because the trails back home were soaked. And, you know, I've broken in new shoes before on other races, so eh, I didn't think this was going to be a big idea. Oh, but it was. The terrain at Reveille is not unlike how I imagine the moon's surface. Smooth, granite-like rock with big crags to trip you up. Plus, there was the occasional stealth rock embedded in the terrain, and these proved to be a huge problem for me. Normally, when I hit uneven surfaces, I can correct myself with core strength. In these dang shoes, I'd hit the rock and literally be launched onto the ground. And this happened over and over and over again. I started to feel like Tigger, who bounces around on his tail, except in my case, I was bouncing around on my shoes. Then, the shoes seemed to make me slower than usual. I decided that this was because I hadn't acclimated to them and because they were a good size and a half too big. Oh, boy, what a bad idea. I felt a little like Bozo the Clown tromping along the trail. And all of this added up to bad omen number three. My mental game began to fall apart. Chris informed me at mile five that it had taken us an hour and 45 minutes to cover that terrain. I became slightly despondent. This was far too slow for me to even get the first 12.44 miles in four hours, and I kept tripping and feeling awkward. Handwritten signs were taped to a tree, warning us that the Yeti was ahead. I giggled. The Yeti is Dale Cugo, one of the most badass of all badass runners with whom I am acquainted. He recently finished the Badwater 135, a 135-mile race across Death Valley, 
in August. And when he isn't racing, he devotes his time to volunteering at aid stations. You know you're getting close when you hear him whooping and hollering in the distance regardless of the hour. Chris and I arrived and Dale promptly helped me with refilling and reloading my hydration pack. He noticed I was getting some chafing on my neckline of my shirt, so he fixed me up with a piece of trail toes tape. He had to just go under the neckline and warned me that he'd be doing so. I appreciated his politeness and was just grateful for the relief. And as Chris and I ran off into the darkness, we overheard him say, I just got to put my hand under a lady's shirt. (laughs) We laughed, heartened by some comic relief. And as we neared the 10 or 11 mile mark, Chris said that we should just chill out and just do as much of the race as we could in the time allotted. I agreed with her idea. By now, my feet were sliding around inside the shoes, rubbing blisters on the insides of my heels. I almost never got blisters. So this was a new demon. And I figured I would switch out of these shoes and into something more familiar, yet not as cushiony when I returned to the start. And then again, I was propelled to the ground. A runner passed us. It was Hoel, one of our friends. He was doing the 30K. He asked how I was doing, and I told him the truth. Not so good. He encouraged me to keep my chin up and sprinted off into the darkness. And then I became envious of those who were just doing the 30K. I really wished I was doing the shorter race. It's extremely challenging to keep going when most of your friends are finishing a shorter distance and are ready to relax. Doubt gripped me again. Chris, I honestly can't bear the idea of going back out there two more times if I'm already this slow. Please, just just go on ahead if you like it. I, I really don't want to hold you back, I said. But Chris said her foot was bothering her and that she wasn't feeling this race either. And I felt guilty as if I had somehow lured her into temptation. Soon we encountered David, our coach and mastermind of our 50-mile training plan. He was walking. I have never seen David walk during a race. He said he almost didn't start his second loop of the 30K because his shoes, the same as mine, uh, were rubbing blisters. I can't do this. I'm not doing cactus rows, I told him. He didn't reply. Finally, he just said, just get back to the start, eat one of your turkey sandwiches, have a Red Bull, and sit for a minute. I don't think I can, I admitted. By this point, I was too far gone. I was fantasizing about sleeping, which usually doesn't happen during these races. David continued on, and then my stomach started feeling bad. I waved Chris onward as I retched on the side of the trail. I felt awful. We staggered toward the finish line, except we took the wrong route and had to double back. We ran it in and crossed in 401. No, not going back out there. I hadn't quit a race in almost two years, and the idea has tempted me a few times, but this time I was just mentally and physically undone. I turned to my chip to the timing guy and explained it just wasn't my night. I spent the remainder of the night in a haze of self-flagellation mixed with relief as I cheered on my friends as they came in. At first, I wanted to blame everything on having a crappy experience because of the shoes, but then when I sorted through my thoughts, I realized I let my head control the race. I could have switched out the shoes and pulled it together and went back out there. I've ridden out lows before, and I know that they don't last an entire race, but I chose not to. It was just as simple as that. I am admittedly envious of people to whom running comes easy and naturally. I'm like that with cycling. I can ride 100 miles, and while it might hurt, I never get how I feel running a distance race. I never feel like quitting a cycling event, even when I crash going downhill at 30 miles an hour and flipped over the handlebars and blacked out in a ditch. 
but running is more of a challenge for me. But the truth is, I prefer it. And I don't mind that I'm kind of sucky. So David suggested that the problem is in my head. He knows that I'm physically capable of covering the mileage. I just let myself fall apart when things didn't go the way I planned them. And then I started reading up about mental focus and running. The biggest piece of wisdom is that running is 90% mental. Wow, it's like inventing the wheel. I think I instinctively know that there's a mental component to running, but I had no idea that it's such a huge piece. And for years, I've slogged through training runs and races without too much focus on the mental aspect. And I thought about a recent 10K night race where I tried to stay present the entire time and ended up running most of the course and only walked a small portion. Even though my time wasn't record-breaking, I felt great at the end. And then I read a story on Runner's World that resonated with me so much that I sought out a book called Focus for Fitness, and it's by a guy named Dean Hebert, and he uh, is the author who was consulted in the article. It was like an ebook, and it cost five bucks, but it contained a wealth of common sense information that I found very relatable, more so than, say, a book about a pro athlete's ability to focus. It's only been a week at this point, um, but I've been diligently working on staying present during my workouts. I can't say that I'm 100% successful yet, but I'm getting there. And on Saturday, I ran around a park dragging a tire for seven miles and then ran a few miles um, afterward without it. And then yesterday, I did a five-mile set of tire drags along a canal. It was mid-morning and hot. I occasionally walked, but ran 90% of it, and I never thought about cutting corners. And then I ran a few miles after that. I keep telling myself that I can do this, and I try not to let my mind wander. I'm determined to finish what I set out to accomplish. I just want to focus on making each training session count. And if I have a bad one, I just can't let it ruin me. You just have to ride out the lows, and then you'll get there. Okay, so that was that. That was my DNF and my self-flagellation. So... A lot of times what happens is after you DNF a race or you don't do a, a race the way you wanted it to, <laughs> the great thing about races is there's always another one. So I found one that was a 50K. Again, it wasn't a 60, but it was close. Uh, and it was about three weeks after Reveille. And so I signed up for it. And it was a, um, a 50K and it was up uh, again in hill country and... Um, so I signed up for that and thought, you know, okay, I'm going to get this. Here comes part two. And now, I, and again, I just want to give you a, a just a quick note here too. Um, I am looking back at that race at this point. So just know that this, this particular entry was written two weeks after I did that race, the 50K. By the time I finished my 50K race two weeks ago, pretty much everyone was gone. Well, except for a few construction workers who clapped for me as I finally came through, finishing my 31st mile. Nine hours and 12 minutes earlier, at 6 a.m., I began the race full of hope that I could make the eight-hour time cutoff. It was not to be, but I was okay with that. I signed up for the Bigfoot back-on-my-feet 50K the day after a DNF the nighttime 60K race in late August. And again, it's not uncommon for a runner to seek redemption after a bad race. It can be a confidence booster. Sadly, my usual companions had other plans for that weekend, so I had to go by myself. And this is the first time I've done an out-of-town race alone. I just booked a hotel room and went with the flow. And it really wasn't that bad. 
I swung by the race site the afternoon before, so I had an idea of where it was, since I'd be arriving on race day in the pre-dawn blackness. A forest green pickup truck with a coat hanger for an antenna passed. I waved, feeling mildly silly for acting like a tourist. As I was getting back into the car, the truck returned. The window rolled down. Oh, hi. I just wanted to check out the place. I'm doing the race tomorrow, I explained to the Mark Ruffalo-looking guy with a beard. He said that he was involved with the race, and if I wanted to follow him, he'd show me around. So I followed his truck along a pothole-riddled road that led to a clearing, and on the left side was a hill with what looked like an Old West sort of building. I found out that the Flat Creek Crossing Ranch rents out these buildings to filmmakers looking for a rustic old town look in their movies. The Mark Ruffalo guy explained that where the race would start and what the course was like in the number of aid stations. He pointed across the way to a trailhead under some trees and explained that if I, that if I had a personal aid station, I could leave my things there. He mentioned that only 10 people had signed up for the 50K. I gulped. The remaining 70 or 80 people were signed up for the 30K or 10K. I went ahead and asked him my burning question. If I don't make the eight-hour cutoff, will I be pulled from the course? I somehow pictured a crew on an ATV or something picking up slowpokes like me at 2 p.m. Stat. He said if people were getting close to being finished that they can continue. I explained that my previous three 50Ks were epic mud fests, and I didn't have a good gauge on how I might perform under seemingly normal circumstances. And his response gave me a sense of relief. There was a full moon and a bit of chill in the air on the morning of September 26th as I put myself in the middle of a loosely formed pack of runners readying for the signal to start. The 50K would be three eight-mile loops followed by a seven-mile loop. It was 6 a.m., dark. I couldn't really see much of anything. Other runners talked to companions and friends, and I just tried to be nonchalant. We got the signal, and the 50K and 30Kers plodded down a dusty path. I managed to hold my middle ground for a little while, and then as soon as the first sign of a hill came, I slowed, and everyone passed me. I didn't care. I figured people occasionally burn themselves out too fast on some of these longer races, and so I just kept to my pace, and I figured I'd be passing some of them eventually. I was about 2.7 miles in when I came to a dry riverbed. A sign with an arrow pointed down, as in I should step down and into the sandy terrain. It was incredibly dark. I flashed my headlamp all over the place, hoping to catch a glimpse of something reflective to guide me. But I saw nothing. I ran through the dry riverbed, noticing that there were huge piles of dead trees blocking the route. I ran back, looking in vain for an entrance. Nothing. I retraced my steps several times, gaining mileage, but not ground and losing precious time. I made one last run through the riverbed, and was disturbed to see an R.I.P. sign and something buried underneath it. I got a little scared and decided it was too early for Halloween pranks, and so I got the heck out of there. The first dim pieces of daylight began to pierce the blackness, and then I saw it. A trail leading across, not through the riverbed, and uphill. I also saw a tiny green piece of ribbon to mark the trail. These ribbons, while lovely, led me to being lost a handful of times throughout the race. It was like they were camouflage, and I later found out that many runners were getting lost. The course, while ill-marked, was beautiful. There were rolling hills, some rocky technical sections, and my favorite, a run through a cave. This was sort of unexpected as I slogged through more sandy, dry riverbeds, 
actually part of the course, um, some crazy trail vegetation and a hike up a wooden platform, which wound into the cave. By the third loop, I was starting to tire of what awaited me on the other side of the cave, an enormous hill laced with crumbling soil and rock. It was also at this point that I knew I was going to miss the eight-hour cutoff. I had mentioned this to the ladies at the second aid station, and they were particularly nice by my third pass, noticing that I hadn't eaten much. I was not hungry. And they sat me in a chair, gave me a Coke and something to eat, which I can't even remember what it was. And we talked for a while about my concerns, and they were encouraging. And one of them said she was going to make me get out of that chair after two minutes, and I was up and out of there within a minute. After passing through the cave and up the hill, I had to pass the aid station again. But before I got there, I noticed a tall blonde kid running toward me, and he was carrying water, a banana, and a can of Coke. Turns out he was sent by the ladies. How are you doing? he asked. I told him I was fine, except that I was worried I was going to miss the cutoff because I kept getting lost. I'll run with you, he said. And this sort of worried me because I was walking and running in equal amounts by this point. I accepted the can of Coke and trotted alongside him. But apparently the race director knew of me and my situation. And the kid explained that I'd be allowed to finish, but they had to send home the timing people. And normally I would feel so embarrassed and ashamed to hear this that I would just quit. But I refused. Before I got to this point, I, I was getting texts and messages from my friends, Louisa, Chris, and David. David, who has been incredibly supportive of me throughout my running journey, told me that everyone was cheering for me and just to keep moving. I told him I felt good and had every intention to keep going. My mind was right. And when I finished my third loop, it was just before 2 p.m., the dreaded cutoff. I spotted the Mark Ruffalo guy and showed him my sports watch. Look, I got lost a few times and I only have 5.25 miles to go. He sort of looked tired and said, here's the thing. I have to send home the timing guy, and when these other two guys come through in a little bit, I'm closing the course. But if you want to get in your mileage, that's fine. I was ecstatic. Sure, no problem. Thank you. He fixed me up with a Ziploc bag filled with fruit and snacks, which he left by my drop bag. And then he suggested a route, which I took, but only got me a couple of miles. And when I came back through, he was still there. Where are you at? He asked. I have 2.75 to go, I said, unflapped. And I looped through again, but when I got near the end, I knew I wouldn't make the mileage. So I backtracked over some of it and then retraced it until I knew I'd get it. By the time I came through, Mark Ruffalo was gone. The construction guys were still there and they made me feel better. I kind of felt like Clark Griswold at the end of National Lampoon's vacation, where Clark demands that they open Wally World even though it's closed. And even though I really didn't care, I needed this to redeem myself. And I did. The clock may have beaten me, but I wasn't. All right. Well, that's what I've got for you this time around. I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, see you next time. <laughs>